Sahi. Sahi. Yes. Okay. Sahi. Okay. Nice. Got what, it right what? the first time. That, yeah, because I was like, <laughs> I was like, nah, it's. I don't know what would make it Sahai. I don't know if it would be like an accent mark, but I was like, what? I'm not feeling Sahai. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so you knew. I went with the Sahi. <laughs> yeah. You know? But, um, yeah. Nah. So, uh, for people listening, I feel like we're, we're in for a treat because uh, it's crazy. I think, um, I think podcasts have both improved and like fucked up the mental health space at the same time yeah because you get a lot of charismatic people advising other people on their own well-being emotional intelligence and like they say it with such certainty mm-hmm. and like here we are we've got someone like you who's read like a trillion fucking books <laughs> you know this is your first podcast and there's people who've like done like a thousand podcast episodes just spewing bullshit you know so i feel like i feel like having that real expert like yourself here that's like done like and of course it's not it's not that people's anecdotal experiences are invalid because obviously if we're all experiencing kind of the same stuff but we just have different opinions that there's like validity to that but i like when in reading your research i was like man like we've got someone who actually does like research on like emotional well-being, emotional intelligence, and um, man, I, like like I always say, to tell my guests, you can explain it a lot better than I probably <laughs> can. But I just I'm just so grateful that you're here today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here, and I think um, you know, it's interesting. You talk about like we all have we all have sort of intuitions about yeah. like what makes someone emotionally intelligent, what's good for well-being. We read, if not you know, books and papers, we at least read like articles where yeah. other people are distilling research for people. And so I think we develop a sort of you know, um, a sort of naive uh, you know expertise in mm. the topic. We deal with it every day. We have friends. We have emotions, right. and we're constantly trying to be our best selves. And so in some ways, the kind of things that I study seem like really intuitive questions or mm. really intuitive answers, but they're not that intuitive. And so when we start unpacking these processes a little bit more closely, we find some unintuitive findings at times as well um, and so I hope that my research can ultimately just be helpful to people yeah. and sort of be become new intuitions yeah and you know this is cool because I feel like I feel like having somebody on the, the younger side um, like fresh literally fresh off of your research because um, like I've had it like all the way on the opposite where like they're like you know let me dust off my like dissertation from 1982 mm-hmm. and, you know before like coming on the podcast and like so I feel like all this is like fresh in your head and all that Very but um so. yeah no uh, so I I guess I'm curious um I'm always curious as to like why people choose the um especially like under a big umbrella like psychology like what leads somebody to choose like a that very specific route um, to me, the only obvious answer is that like, it just sounds fucking awesome. But like, like what, what for you was like the, the that thing? Yeah. You know, I have a sort of, uh, unconventional path into a psych program, meaning I tested out a lot of different things yeah. before I got here. So when I was an undergrad at first, I was a pre-med, you know, okay. I thought this there's only good can come from this. Yeah. Uh, eventually I realized it's probably not the right fit for me. And I was then a philosophy major. Okay. I was also a psych major. I was just interested in how people work, how the world works. I think like a lot of us at that age. Yeah. And so I got really, I think more interested in philosophy at the time, but mm. I was interested in things like philosophy of mind, philosophy of science, okay. consciousness. Yeah. These were the kinds of questions I was really interested in. Yeah. Um, and ultimately it, it is questions about what makes us work and, and how we relate to the to the world around us, mm-hmm. the external world. Yeah. 
Um, and so after undergrad, first I thought, let's take a break from academia. Let's um, just do anything, any job I can get. Mm -hmm. Turns out that was an education job. So mm -hmm. I was a lower school teacher for two years. Um, and there was sort of the first uh, sort of like inspirations for what I study now. I worked in uh, classrooms with, again, like lower school students who had really high emotional needs. And uh, what I noticed was in terms of what was most important for me as a teacher was not just regulating my own emotions in high emotion environments, figuring out how to regulate their emotions, and then figuring out how to teach them the skills to help each other regulate their emotions. Mm -hmm. Because without that, we weren't really able to do any learning in the classroom. That was number one. And so I just became started to become fascinated with emotions specifically. Yeah. Then I did a master's actually in Atlanta, Georgia, um, and it was a neurophilosophy program, neuroscience philosophy. And that's where I started to get a little bit more into emotion research. What are emotions? Yeah. What are they for? Like what like purpose do they serve, mm -hmm. especially between people? Mm -hmm. What do they do? So that's where I got into that kind of work. And then I worked in some neuroscience labs some psychopathology labs. And that's where the psychology rap really began. Yeah. Man, that, yo, that, again, I'm, I'm just, if I say that's so cool, like, 15 times a day, <laughs> just excuse me for that. But, like, <laughs> no, nah, it's just, it's just, um, I think, uh, you know, on that topic of emotions, my prediction has always been that, like, all of our, emo and I'm sure it's probably more nuanced than this, but, like, I, like, thinking of ourselves as, like, you know, like, cavemen or some shit, I feel like that, that our emotions for the most part are there to help us like either survive or like detect certain things and like how much of a um how much of like our emotions are rooted in like what's necessary to like survive in a tribe and other stuff but like i guess i guess because like when we say the word emotions like there's a like a major school of thought there's like people that actually believe like okay like women have emotions men don't like they're mm -hmm. like very like you know, like binary, mm -hmm. like just fucking incorrect things. <laughs> so like the, that word emotions itself is already so like loaded and probably misunderstood. But like, if I don't know if this makes sense, but like what, how would you define the word emotion? Yeah. Wow. That is really, you know, it's such a controversial question. Mm, I think most yeah. people don't necessarily know that, but, yeah. um, in thinking about what you just brought up, you know, the earliest philosophers thought about emotions as like a hindrance to to a person, especially thinking about it from the sort of gendered perspective. Mm -hmm. They thought your responsibility is to be rational, mm -hmm. to be, you know, like clear headed and emotions just cloud you. And so if you're hysterical, you're more feminine. Yeah. If you're more rational, you're more masculine right. and you want to be devoid of emotions. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, over the course of, of uh, you know, like learning in philosophy and in psychology, people don't think that anymore. Um, but even now we don't really have a clear definition of emotions. So now everybody agrees that they're functional, not that we should get rid of them, not that we shouldn't have them, but that they're really serving us all the time, that yeah. they're really, really key to our survival in ways that you described. So like from a more, uh, sort of like, uh, animal perspective, you could think about it as, you know, fear can help you avoid danger, you know, anger can help you confront danger, mm -hmm. all of these kinds of things. It makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, but in the 90s, people started building on that to talk about the sort of socio functions mm -hmm. of emotions and what their role is in sort of our societies and our relationships mm. um, and how it's not just about, you know, avoiding the tiger and the bear, but helping us create and maintain relationships. Yeah. Our emotions give us constant feedback about what's working for us and not working for us in our environments. And that includes in our relationships. And so a lot of times emotions give us the opportunity to correct what's wrong. Yeah. So sometimes if you're angry, you need to confront. Sometimes if you're sad, you need to let go. And there are all these different sort of, you know, emotion categories that have these different functions. Mm -hmm. In terms of the controversy today, I would say that there's two main sort of camps about what, in terms of what people think emotions are. And this is a sort of spectrum, but you can think of these, these sort of two, two camps. One is the sort of, I guess, sort of discrete emotion camp. For this camp, emotions are something that we share with non-human animals. It's something that we share with infants. It's something that we're sort of, we're, we're born with. We have mm -hmm. emotion systems, essentially. Mm -hmm. And these emotion systems exist before we have emotion concepts. And our sort of concepts of emotions, as we learn about them, we can sort of modify those systems and regulate them and things like that. Now, there's another camp that is more of the construction, constructionist camp. Okay. For this camp, emotions are constructed through our knowledge. So as so this would mean that, you know, a lot at least to our knowledge, non-human animals may not have emotions. Infants even may not wow. have emotions. What they would say instead is that what animals have and what infants have, non-human animals, is affect. Affect is a sort of, you know, more like mood, arousal, positive, negative, but it's not clear. It's a sort of fuzzy picture. Mm -hmm. And so what they say is that over the course of our lifespans, we learn about emotion words, we learn about them through our specific cultures, through our specific contexts and societal sort of, you know, um, standards and norms. And those are the things that then give us information to define our internal experiences. And that's what an emotion is. Wow. So it's two kind of very different ways to see it. Ultimately, both camps agree, though, that emotions are functional. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, so this is this is cool, because um, one of my probably like one of the most important episodes I did, like, for me, really, was this guy I brought in. Um, uh, he's a psychologist as well, but his uh, expertise is in, like, understanding how, like, language influences the brain and just, like, what we, you know, decide to do. And um, he that, – that conversation made me realize, like, how – like, I never really thought of language as this thing that is – it's just the closest tool that gets – me and you on the same page, but we're never act you're never actually on the exact same page with someone. It's all it's like fascinating and kind of scary. Mm -hmm. You know, so like and I and I say that because like I feel like and maybe you can like add a, a different way of thinking about it, but I feel like emotions, if I were to put it under like two main hoods, I I would say like these are your up emotions and these are your down emotions. And like, like, so like what we call happy, like if somebody was happy or hyper or um, excited or anxious, I think it's interesting that on the outside that like that might all kind of look like the same mm -hmm. depending on the person. And then there's a bunch of down emotions that like might also all look like the same. Mm -hmm. So it's like, so I'm curious, like if in your work, 
Like, is it even possible to define a specific emotion with a specific word? Yeah, that's so interesting. And that is honestly the root of this controversy. So basically, when you try to study emotions, there's no one-to-one mapping. You Mm -hmm. can't say anger looks like this all the time. Mm. Joy looks like this all the time. I can't look at you and say, for sure, 100%, this is the emotion you're feeling. And that's just part of the, you know, the problem of two minds, the sort of, you know, philosophical issue of not knowing another being's experience. Uh, but in general, there's just a lot of variability in how people experience emotions. And that's sort of, again, shaped by their their own personal experiences, the way that they regulate. And so emotions can look very different. Even what we would call anger, what someone would define in themselves as anger, could look different in you and I. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, I think that's where constructionism sort of emerged to say, look, because there's so much variability, we can't actually say that there were these you know, preformed systems for emotions. Mm-hmm. We we created them through mm-hmm. our own information. Yeah. But on the other hand, the other camp would say, okay, yes, there were these preformed systems, but we update them just like we update every system in our brains. Yeah. We constantly learn and we retrain our, our own our own systems. Yeah. And so those systems were already there. We just reworked them and that's why there's so much variability. Mm. Man, that's so I, I I imagine I like one of my recent guests, actually the most recent episode, um, was a social epidemiologist and I feel like she was in another lane that um also probably went in like crazy demand, especially during COVID. So I'm guessing that COVID, um, you know, people that do your type of work were probably sought out um probably quite a lot in terms of like how because like now, you know, with limited um uh, touch and 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 communication like what like how do you take care of your own mental health mm-hmm. and like how can you still be there for people um and I say that specific because like looking at your research it, it looked like you did a, a, a couple things that like touched on that mm-hmm. isolation in particular mm-hmm. but um yeah I guess you know what maybe because I, I think um you know and I COVID is like that word that like when you hear it, like you're either turned on and want to keep hearing whatever this is or just like turn it <laughs> off. So like maybe like stepping back from even COVID, can you in your research just in general maybe touch on what like isolation does to a person? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So in general, I, we are extremely social creatures. Mm-hmm. That's just evolutionarily true. We survive in tribes. We survive in communities. Yeah. And because of that, our brains have sort of evolved to really, really care about social information. And so that means I, I actually spend a lot of time of like my, my sort of default processing uh, is spent on trying to figure out what other people think, what other mm-hmm. people feel, so that I can predict their behavior, so that I can respond to their behaviors, and they can respond to me. And I put this effort into creating words to translate what I think and feel yeah. to you. We really put a lot of our wow. resources into this, mm-hmm. into being social. We are so, so social. And because of that, social isolation also has a lot of consequences. So again, thinking back to the fact that we're social because we help each other survive, that means that when we become disconnected from others, our brains are like sort of signaling to us that there's a big problem. Mm -hmm. Because if you become disconnected, you might not survive anymore. Mm -hmm. You need your tribe. And so because our brains are sort of attuned to that type of disconnection, we feel it really deeply. Mm -hmm. So not only does it feel really bad to feel disconnected, to feel rejected, it also, you also end up deprived of all of the the benefits of social connection. So social connection can help us. It can buffer us against mental health disorders, but also physical health uh, sort of 
challenges. So for example, people recover from cancer faster and better if they have a social network that supports them. Wow. And so we really, really need the people around us. And so social isolation is really, really hard on people. And a lot of people have dedicated their, their research to really just studying things like loneliness mm. and the consequences of loneliness and how to start to ameliorate it. Mm. That, so man, I, bro, I just, I just got like three million questions just from what you just said about that because that what I'm because now I'm interested in, in two things and of course we'll answer them one at a time but like one the the what what are people feeling when they are surrounded by people they have friends and family and they still feel deeply lonely mm -hmm. I'm just curious as to like what that even is mm -hmm. um, and I guess two just um, Oh man, you know what? See, because I had too much in my head, so that serves me right. I forgot about no, it. No, it's just okay. Go, my go. mind's swirling yeah, too. We could not, go so many directions. It's, it's just because it, I let me see if I can get. Can I get it? No, I can't. I can't. <laughs> we'll sit here for like ten minutes, but um, yeah, if you want to just start with that first one. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, oh, so what is it? Why do people feel disconnected sometimes when they have connections? Is that the idea? Yeah. Like so. So maybe even like maybe a better question is obviously closeness in physical proximity is not the only mm -hmm. way to describe closeness 100%, um, yeah. or like talking to somebody all day. That's not the only way to, to, so what is it, what is it that a person has to feel to feel like they have a community they're not lonely? Yeah. yeah. Really good question. So, so first the researchers who really focus on things like loneliness and social connection focus on perceived social mm. connectedness because okay. that's really what it comes down to. There's no like objective measure of like they have X number of friends, mm -hmm. so they feel connected. It really is about how people feel. And in terms of thinking about what matters to people for feeling connected, I think it, again, just connect back to what we're talking about in terms of like we need each other mm -hmm. is feeling like you have resources. Mm. So just because you have friends doesn't mean you feel like you can rely on them, like they know you, like they would accept you if they knew everything about you. Like if you had hard times, they would be there in the way that you needed them, not just be there, but in the way that you needed them. And so I think here it's not just a question of, again, objective, how many people do you have, but about how you perceive yourself in relation to those people. How do you see your relationships with them? Are they the kinds of relationships that make you feel safe? Hmm. Damn. That's. <laughs> oh man, I uh, that's that's crazy because um, yeah, that you know, and I and I know at, I'm I guess so I'm technically the first year of Gen Z. I'm 26, so um, I and I was actually I was having a conversation with somebody about like like what we feel like are legitimate differences between like our generation and others, and um, I feel like you know 20 maybe even earlier 10 years from now we'll have like a lot of studies on what like you know the, the first social media generation what it did to our brains and how we experience relationships and whatnot but we like in talking to this person we both agreed that gen z seems to be at this weird thing where everyone wants connection a lot of people complain that they don't have it yet like there's not really like things being done to to change it and i'm, I'm just curious if like your work has looked at what um like looked at like whether or not because i guess to, to explain that the, the original intention of social media ironically is to bring people together make people feel close mm -hmm. and and i guess 
from your work, like if you would be able to analyze like what about social media doesn't fill that void that like, I guess, real life connections do. Yeah. So I think some of the things you could say are a little bit more obvious. So mm -hmm. for example, physical touch is really important to mm -hmm. humans. Um, we have, we are mammals and mammals, you know, uh, sort of bond with their caregivers through touch and things like this. And so it remains important for us sort of across the lifespan and can even sort of, uh, regulate pain. But and so things like that are missing when you're only interacting online. So in some of the work that we did um, during COVID, though, looking at virtual interactions and how it might sort of fill the gap for people, it did help. It did help to be communicating with the, with different people. And one of the things that we found was that communicating with more people was was better oh, for okay. people during that time, probably because, you know, you only have access to so so few people during during the like immediate lockdown at that time. Um, and some work on social networks has really shown that it's not just important to have. So basically, the people have looked at sort of the rings of your network and there's like an inner core, something like five people, they say, is the magic number. That's kind of the, the biggest number approximately on average that you can like really care for and receive care from. Once it gets more than that, you really don't have a lot of resources to give and take. Yeah. And so you really have that stable core. Beyond that, though, it's important for us to have connections with people that are still on that periphery that we see on a regular basis. And the theory there is that it gives us a sort of sense of purpose sometimes to feel embedded within a community. Mm. And so sometimes this could even just be your, your neighbor, your mailman, like your whoever it is, mm -hmm. um, just people that you make small talk with, that can be really good for mental health. And so that's one of the things people have seen in sort of older adults as well as you age, that sometimes those relationships are the ones that drop off. Yeah. You still have your core, but you don't have your community. You don't yeah. feel sort of embedded. Mm -hmm. And that embeddedness is really important. Now, if you think about this in terms of social media, well, in social media, you have this sort of infinite community, but yeah. we know from network science and from studying social networks and people that having a huge number is not what we need. What we need is our core, and then we need to feel embedded in a community. Wow. And I think social, social media can sometimes do that for us. Mm. So I think for people who, for example, feel disconnected from certain parts of their identity, uh, getting it on social media might be really, really fulfilling. Yeah. Um, and so there are ways I think that it can be really beneficial. But at the same time, there is a sort of lack of true investment when it comes to social media. And so thinking again about resources, what makes us feel connected and cared for is feeling like you've invested resources in someone and they've invested resources in you. Yeah. It's kind of hard to do that on social media yeah. sometimes when you have so many connections, you can't really put real resources into each right, other. Right, yeah. Damn, that makes so much sense. And for some reason, um, when you mentioned physical touch, I uh, it reminded me of the, uh, God, way back in the day when I used to like go to church. Um, <laughs> it's been so long. Uh, I, uh, I, I remember the... Uh, and it's a shame that they do this at the end because um, they, like, will, uh, after everyone gets, like, the, the bread and wine and shit, they'll be, like, you know, now, like, turn to your neighbor and, like, people, like, shake hands and hug and shit. And I remember, like, every time I would feel like it's, like, okay, like, God, what, it was, like, 10 years old. And it's, like, and I would, like, do that. And, like, all of a sudden I feel like I now relate to this, like, 90-year-old white dude behind me. And it's, mm -hmm. like, oh, like – just shaking your hand and like looking in the eye like I actually feel like we're like a community and mm -hmm. I anyway just thinking about what you were saying I was like you know what if I ever lead group stuff I'm just gonna like force everyone to walk around the room and, like high five each other yeah you know? just like make sure that like like before we start like everyone has touched each other <laughs> in like the least weird way possible yeah high five seems safe 
safe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you know, but like, but like, um, nah, that that that's such a touch is crazy. I I wonder, are there are there any like studies or anything where like 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 anything that shows like like maybe like drastic differences between people who um uh receive touch and those like who don't and like what like maybe peer, like how long someone can go before they start like losing it shit like that oh that's really interesting so uh, i'm not aware of i'm sure there is research on this yeah. but i'm not aware of research that sort of shows like like the bare minimum amount of touch necessary yeah. for good for like positive well-being but there's lots of research that shows that if you if you start like depriving uh people of touch that it's not a good thing and so if you think about some of some of, I can't think, these studies might have been in like the 70s, the Harlow Monkey studies. Do you know these studies? No, no. So this is one of the sort of first examples of how important touch really is to us. And uh, they can't do these kinds of studies anymore. It's a little bit mean to the monkeys. But they basically took these monkeys from their mothers, like right after, like very early in, in infancy. And they gave them two separate sort of rooms or they, you know, they had two sort of like um, types of interactions that these okay. monkeys could have. And one of them, they would get food. So if they went up to this wire monkey um, that was supposed to be the mother, they could get milk from it. Um, they could also go to a cloth monkey where they could snuggle. They could mm. snuggle the, the mm. mom monkey. And neither was a real monkey, of course. But what they preferred was the snuggle monkey. Yeah. They wanted the touch. We need touch from a very, very early age. We really need touch. To the point where they were willing to, to rather go to the cloth monkey than the milk monkey, which wow. they needed, again, to survive. Wow. And so... That was one of the earliest examples of how important touch is, and it continues to be something that people study a lot. People have studied it in the context of regulation. People have shown, for example, that if you um, administer physical pain to people in the lab, mm -hmm. for example, through a, a shock, like an electric shock, or a cold presser, touching something extremely cold, like mm -hmm. ice cold, it's painful. Um, so they'll do these, these trials oh. with people, and then they'll, they'll have your partner touch you. Um, like maybe your romantic partner, somebody that yeah. you trust. Yeah. And it will actually downregulate pain in the brain. Um, and so, you know, if it can have that kind of effect at, in the lab when mm -hmm. you're experiencing physical pain that is going to stop very yeah. soon, imagine the kind of impact it can have in your daily life, especially when you're going through hardships, yeah. mental or physical. Yeah, that sounds like a really funny way to find out that someone who's supposed to love you, like, doesn't like you. Like, what if, like, that person they brought in just, like, actually made the pain worse? Oh, yeah. Oh, just, yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. And <laughs> sometimes they've, they've shown things like that with stranger touching yeah. because oh, there are yeah. different types of touching. There's, like, gripping, there's stroking, and they stimulate different nerves. Yeah. And so they've oh, studied different kinds. Wow kinds of touch and definitely for some of these when it's a stranger you're like please make yeah. it stop <laughs> yeah i love i love that thin line between like endearing and like creepy yeah it's a very yeah. fucking thin line but um no nah, man that that's that's insane and i i think uh i think i think where we're headed right now i like as a society it definitely seems like and again, this is just my own anecdotal experience. It, it, it feels like we are, we're, I'm sure to some degree, um, as like technology improves, there is then less need for like group manpower to make certain things happen. Um, I mean, I'm not that like it would take 12 people to like go get the fucking eggs that the chicken laid. But, like, there was some type of, like, back in the day with less technology, it just meant that you were probably working with people more mm -hmm. and that you had to rely on others more. And um, so I'm just – I just I'm, – I'm curious as to see, if like, if there's any general trends. Because I, I think 
people like myself and a lot of us, like, again, non-experts, we like to say that, you know, oh, man, you know, people feel more distant than they did 10 years ago. But, like, is there any validity to, to sayings like that? Yeah. Like so that? I do think that a lot of a lot of what we're seeing now in terms of people feeling disconnected and, and isolated and lonely is because of mobility. Mm. We move all the time. We're mm. not in physical proximity to the same people that we've spent our entire lives or childhood with in oh. the same ways that we used to be. And this is part of this is just a global economy, right? And so people move around more. They move for work. And because of this, you are constantly forging new relationships. And new relationships take time to uh, sort of suss out in terms of whether you can really trust them, mm -hmm. whether the, the resources are actually there for you when you need them to be, whether you're really compatible and people grow in and out of each other, more willing to let go of short-term relationships mm -hmm. than one that you've had since you were a child. Right. And so yeah. I think that this is part of the reason that nowadays people mm -hmm. feel more disconnected is because we, we move so much. Yeah. We also have so many options and that option overload, I think can, can be a good thing in some ways. So for example, if you grow up with toxic relationships, it's great that you can get away from them, right? right? Yeah. Like that's those relationships are not going to serve you necessarily, even if they do make you still feel safe. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's good to have those options. But I think when we have too many options, too, sometimes it feels like we can just trade trade friends in. Mm. And that probably also makes it hard to maintain this this feeling of feeling embedded again in a network, feeling connected mm -hmm. to a, not just to one or two people, but maybe to a group of people. Mm -hmm. So some research has shown that it's actually better in some ways for, for your sort of health and things like that to be embedded in networks where those people are also close to each other. Mm. The reason being that when you need help, they can work together to help you. It's oh, less wow. straining yeah. for them to help you because they can sort of take turns and, and talk to each other when they're having a hard time figuring out what you need. Yeah. And so it can make it easier again to support each other. But the more we have these sort of individual siloed relationships, that can become harder. Wow. You know what? That, that reminds me of the uh, <laughs> episode of Seinfeld. Where, um, uh, have you seen Seinfeld at all? I've seen a little bit. Okay, yeah. It's like, it's actually one of the few sitcoms that are like actually funny. But, um, <laughs> no, anyway, there's this, uh, so the uh, the three main people, uh, uh, um, George, Elaine, and of course, Jerry. Uh, Jerry's like, like the, like, he's their best friend, like individually. Like, that. I, there was not really, at least early on, there was not much of a link between Elaine and uh, George and there's this one episode where he has to Jerry has to cancel last minute so like the the next two episodes like shows like the awkwardness of like that like when the glue's not there mm -hmm. now these people have to get close and like but then it showed like 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 as they got better they were all like get, they all got better at like helping each other yeah. so it's just it's really interesting that like that's, I don't know why that, that popped up. No, my head, it makes but, sense. And if you yeah. think of like any classic like friendship TV show, Friends, You're right? Yeah, Sex in the City, like any of these shows, they're all also friends with each other, yeah. and that's really what makes makes it work. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, so so this is um, this is uh, interesting because I think um, I guess I guess like where my head has been so far in our conversation has been like mostly uh, uh, friends and and family, um, and I feel like all I can say again like uh based on like anecdotal experiences that for some reason uh romance like just makes all of this shit like a lot crazier mm -hmm. it brings out like sides to like like i've always said like um this is it's related but, like not really i've always said like um that romance like when things go wrong in people's romantic lives it is one of the it might be the only I think if you like mess with somebody's kid 
or mess with their spouse. Mm -hmm. It might be the only two ways that I can think of off the top of my head that can turn a decent person into like a literal murderer. Like we've heard the stories of like the dude who came home and saw his wife cheating. He went from like someone who's never committed to crime to like cutting up two people to fucking axe. And it's Mm -hmm. like, what is it? What is it about that extreme deep, like betrayal that you feel from someone you're romantically involved that seems to be like unique of any other relationship. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I think that with romantic partners, again, if you think about resources Mm -hmm. and commitments, Mm -hmm. so you're putting more resources, most likely more resources into your spouse or your significant other than you are into your everyday friends. So you're expecting more resources in return. So when you have that expectation, that's where betrayal comes in. I expected this. You did something completely different. That's that kind of betrayal cuts really, really deep. I think that sometimes friendships can start to border on that as well. Best friendships, you have higher expectations from them. And so you have different sorts of, again, feelings of betrayal or loss when you lose that person. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people even have really deep feelings of uh, loss, not necessarily betrayal, but, but for example, if they lose their pet. And so oh, right. there are ways in which other relationships can can start to take that kind of importance on. Mm-hmm. But I think in monogamous relationships, you have, again, more resources devoted to each other and you have a commitment. And that commitment, again, can look different across different people. But whatever the commitment is sort of sets the expectation. Once that expectation is violated, it can cause a lot of a lot of inner turmoil. Mm. When it comes to children, there's something a little bit different happening, although it can start to transfer into a, a spousal relationship or romantic relationship as well. But that's the caregiving love. Oh, so yeah. people think about love and thinking about emotion types as having there's different kinds. There's romantic love. There's nurturant love. Nurturant love is more of what you feel towards your children, towards maybe your pets, even sometimes towards maybe elderly family members, and potentially even towards your romantic partners when they are really in need of nurturance. Yeah. So for example, if they are dealing with cancer or something like that that makes it so that you have to care for them, mm-hmm. um, there's a different type of love that you feel. And again, when you love something that much, you grow a certain level of attachment to it. Mm-hmm. And so losing it feels really disruptive. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, and it's a good point with kids because like I, I feel like kids is, um, it's the only, it's the probably the only thing I've seen in my life where uh, consistently the majority of of people with kids seem to be like perfectly fine with sacrificing themselves to save their kids. And like I, I mean that. I guess, I mean, I, I guess sacrifice is a form of love to mm-hmm. some degree for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it seems like it, I'm, I'm always, uh, I've always like noticed that like different, the extremes of different relationships leads us to like do different things. I, I it's even interesting. Cause like, um, if, uh, I think if, you know, a friend was telling you a story about, um, uh, they found out that like their best friend actually has like a secret best friend. And then like you heard that like, you know, out of anger, they like keyed up their car, mm-hmm. like burned all their clothes and shit. You're like, wow, that person's fucking insane. But for some reason, if, if like you heard that, that they were cheated on by their partner, everyone would be like, I get it. Yeah. That's a Carrie Underwood song, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's, it's interesting that we, kind of for the most part i'm sure it's different it uh, depending on the culture but at least in western culture it seems to be like people understand people going crazy over like their partners Mm -hmm. um so i don't know but that that's a that's a i don't know that 
I think of maybe my own free time, I'll study that. Because I'm just, I'm curious as to like what in that moment mm-hmm. makes someone who is like, like it turns people who have never even like slapped or punched, like never done any form of violence. Mm-hmm. And it takes people from zero to like absolute 100 yeah. in, ra- in like extreme situations. Um, I'm just, I just wonder what on an emotional level snaps in your brain yeah. to like do that. That's some of it. Some of it could probably also be explained by emotion socialization. Mm. So we're socialized to believe that, especially in Western cultures, as you mentioned, there are differences between Western and Eastern cultures in terms of how individualistic or collectivistic we are Mm -hmm. in our relationships. But um, especially in Western cultures where we're more individualistic and we sort of focus on the people immediately around us. Mm -hmm. We're not like... We don't care about everybody. We care about our own. Yeah. And so our own become really important. Uh, they become an extension of you. Yeah. And so you feel violated sometimes yeah. the more you think of those people as part of yourself. And when you think about how emotions are socialized again, no matter what emotion systems are there or not there, wherever we fall in the emotion theory landscape, we can all agree that those systems are updated by our societies and our norms. And so I think that we as a society, at least in Western cultures, have been socialized to believe that this is like the biggest source of betrayal in a way that's almost um, shameful, Mm. in a way that's really like it rips the rug out from under you, that this is like the worst thing that could happen to you. And because if you think, start to think about it that way, we call this appraisals. It's how you sort of uh, think about a certain situation or appraise it or understand it. You assign meaning to it. Mm. So if you assign meaning to this event as being the most disruptive event, your emotions will respond accordingly. Emotions most people agree are basically wrapped around these appraisals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess, you know, in a larger sense, what, what can be said about like what the, how do you, what is that middle ground between making sure that you are reacting and you are processing your emotions and not going too far Mm -hmm. and that you're not um, downplaying them too much? Like what, like what, I'm sure it's different for everybody, but like, is there maybe a consistent method or methods that you found that like helps people like, I guess, come to some stability? Yeah. So I think if you just talk to like emotion researchers who are concerned about mechanism, a lot of times what they'll talk about is goals. Mm. When you talk to clinical therapists, what they'll talk about is values. Mm. And I think it, it gets you to a similar place. So essentially when you have an emotional response to something, you can ask yourself, is this emotion aligned with my goal in this situation? Or you could say, is it aligned with my values? What I want, what I believe I should be or want to be. And so I think that is sort of the the checkpoint for you for Mm. figuring out, should I let this emotion like go to its maximum? So for example, sometimes anger. Anger is like an explosive emotion, Right. right? It's one that a lot of times people teach us is bad and we should control. But anger also is really important for relationships, Mm -hmm. for survival. And sometimes not expressing anger is worse for us than than Mm -hmm. holding it in. And this is is true in dyadic, so like in one-on-one situations. It's also true at the societal level when you think about social justice. Sometimes anger really needs to be out and it needs to go places. And that anger is a fuel for you to change your environment. And so anger sometimes is, is really important. So it's in each individual situation though, as you get angry, you can ask yourself, is this going to serve the goal that I have right now? Hmm. And if it's not, I can, I can make a decision to say, I'm going to regulate right now the way that I'm feeling and either return to this anger later mm-hmm. or I'm going to let it go. Because mm-hmm. in this case, this anger really, not only is it not serving me, but I actually think maybe I'm 
maybe I'm misunderstanding the situation. Yeah, yeah. And I'll give myself some time to process. Yeah, I'm going to start saying that. I'm going to regulate. I'm yeah. Gonna, like, makes me feel scientific about yeah. my own bullshit. You know? but, we all um, do it, though. We all do that. No, nah, like that, that's, uh, that's, I'm, I'm, again, like this is, see, this is so cool just because I think, um, there's just so many directions that you can go with this. I, I can totally understand why someone would d- decide to do this with their life. Like, I think you picked well, very, <laughs> you know, outside of like the paper writing and, and reading and all that shit. Like to the core, what you do is very cool. So that's that's awesome. Thank you. Um, so I guess like what what um, I mean, you know, speaking on all those directions you can go into, um, I'm curious as to what you chose to focus on um, in your research and uh, why. Yeah, so one of the main focuses of my research is interpersonal emotion regulation or social emotion regulation. So in other words, how am I regulating you? How are you regulating me? We talk a lot <clears throat> in the emotion research you know, literature about self-regulation strategies. What are the different ways that I can recognize my emotion, emotional goal, decide whether it's meeting it? What are the tools available for me to change how I'm feeling? Mm-hmm. Should I change how I'm thinking about it? Should I distract myself? There are all of these different tools. And they've been studied really extensively. And this is, of course, really important work. I mean, we need, we need these tools. We need to know how to use them. But one thing that struck me when I first came across this research is that we a lot of times in our lives do not do this by ourselves. I don't change my own mind about how I'm feeling. I don't distract myself. A lot of times we go to the people around us and either ask for help or they can tell we need it and they give it to us. And so what I wanted to understand is the mechanisms of those interactions. When we're interacting with other people in these emotional contexts, how does what they say or do or the way that they say it or even touch or things Mm -hmm. like that, how does that change what's happening inside of me? And part of the reason that I came to this question, so again, I saw the, the sort of gap in the literature and thought it was, it was interesting, but it takes me back to when I was a teacher. One of the coolest things that happened when I was teaching, I taught an emotional intelligence curriculum for a little mm-hmm. while, and it was, it was definitely like a pilot. You know, They were like, here's some stuff, try it out, yeah. see what happens. So what, what age group was this again? This, was, I, this, this curriculum I specifically implemented in lower school. So it was okay. like third grade, fourth grade, fifth cool. grade, even yeah. lower sometimes. Um, so kids, you know, like nine, 10 years old. And so we would teach them things like about the brain, like here are the centers of your brain that sort of like are responsive to things like fear. Here are the centers of your brain that can sort of regulate that. Here's where your memories are stored kind of things. And then we teach them things about regulation, you know, appraisals, Mm -hmm. you know, but the third graders, they were, they were getting it. They were like, okay, yes, I can change how I think. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's not as bad as it seems. Um, But what was really striking to me and what was really also important for me is that when I taught them about the brain and about emotions and about regulation, and then I also taught them about things like like mirror neurons, how emotions can be contagious between people, they kind of put two and two together on their own and thought, oh, my friend here who's crying because of whatever happened, I can help them change how they're thinking to help them change how they're feeling. Let me try implementing Mm. that thing that we just learned. And they would just go do it to each other. Mm. And this is where I really saw, like, we don't do this by ourselves. We help each other do this. And when you think about kids, it's not just that they're helping each other do it. They're learning from other people how to do it. They're learning what their emotions mean and how to change them and whether they want to change them or not. That Mm. should be up to us Mm -hmm. as an individual. But you can get help in reaching your goals. Yeah. And so that's that's where the inspiration came from. And I was like, I have to I have to know. How do we do this? What's yeah. the mechanism? Yeah. Man, that wow. That is 
that's crazy because um one with uh teaching because i i taught kids as well uh younger kids and in a real in a weird way man like if you watch like a room of like third fourth graders they kind of tell you like the whole story about like what people are Mm -hmm. you know in a weird (laughs) really impulsive fucking way but they do and um yeah no that that i think um i think so I've always had this analogy in my head, especially as a as a ensemble musician. We're hyper aware of how what we do affects uh, the entire band, the entire orchestra. And I've always had this like analogy, like when walking into a room that like for the most part, especially if it's like, you know, these people have like maybe been doing whatever they're doing for a while that like if you pretend that there's like a uh, like a metaphorical ball being passed around uh, on an emotional level like could you step into that circle and like not fuck up the rotation mm-hmm. like like could you keep the ball going the way that like they want to keep and like really be a part of that group mm-hmm. cuz i've always like it's always been and i think a lot of people have this theory of like man you know those people that walk into a room and just like fuck up the whole vibe yeah. like i think <laughs> I think, you know what? I feel like your science gives me permission to say fuck you to those people. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> uh, you know what? Because, like, nah, because cause I, I think, because um, I, I know, I, like, I've met people that, like, are aware that mm-hmm. they're like that, and they just don't care. Yeah. It's just like, bro, like, what? Like, I'm with you on that one. Because, <laughs> like, I and that's, you know, a little bit of a personality difference, I think. Yeah. So some people, thinking back to, like, emotional intelligence, you know, you gotta you gotta work on it. You yeah. gotta develop it. You gotta first of all want to. Yeah. You gotta care about it. That's something that you're invested in doing. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's something that you then work on. And I think that some people are probably more naturally attuned to this. And those people are probably and you know. Okay, so I'll start by saying those people are probably empathic, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of different kinds of empathy, and yeah. so that literature gets interesting too. So there are people who can sort of. Um, perspective take really easily so they can think about what the other person is thinking about and sort of understand and, and tell you this is this is how they think this is how they feel mm-hmm. there's other people who can sort of emotionally empathize and this is sort of thought of in terms of empathic concern um, you can sort of synchronize with them vibe with them you sort mm-hmm. of get where they're coming from and you, and you can sort of feel it then there's like one sort of offshoot of, of that that's kind of similar but it's the personal distress item and mm-hmm. so this is where when other people are distressed you get distressed as well it's hard for you to be on their vibe because it just like makes you stressed out Mm. and so people just naturally vary in in what kind of person they are on these types of dimensions Mm -hmm. and of course you can work on it you can train it um if you want to Mm -hmm. again if you're invested in that kind of thing but i think that probably plays a role in your ability to pass the ball just like to just fit in um and to maintain the vibe and i think that in order to regulate others effectively you need to you need to have some uh, sense, not even some sense, a good sense of what they're going through mm-hmm. and what it is they need. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we've studied is sort of figuring out also like what are the different ways that you can help somebody else and starting to look at a little bit of what are the individual differences there? Like people are different. They have different needs and preferences. What kind of support do people really want and how does that change depending on the situation, who they are, and then also a little bit of like who I am. Mm-hmm. What am I able to provide to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know... I got it. You know what? Let me, let me take my <laughs> cheers again. Um, it never gets easier. Um, yeah, so I, um, I mean, I think I'm the 
best. But <laughs> I can also be a you know, I, I've learned in the last like few years, especially that the uh, type of advice that I like to get um, is uh, it's it's not the preferred style of consoling a person when they're like going through shit, whether it's something light or something real serious. But um, I am very much the friend that. Um, if I hear you, like if you vent to me about like a problem that can actually be fixed, I'm, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm so bad at just like letting a person just like, like, cause if it's one thing, it's like, man, like my, you know, my, my mom died and I feel like shit, there's no fixing that. And I yeah. think like you got, but like when someone's like, man, like I just hate my job, this and that, just like, yo, just give me like, you're not like stuck in this hell. You can actually yeah. like kind of change shit. Right. But, um. Uh, and I think I was reading a little bit of one of the um, uh, uh, studies that you were a part of that showed like effective ways to console um, people. And I think one of them was uh, how like like being there just like as an ear mm -hmm. is, is really important. And of course, I admit that's like where I'm bad at and where it's just like, yo, let's fix these problems. Yeah. But um, what I guess, can you describe like why that time to just kind of let someone like, I guess, vent, like why that is important mm -hmm. in terms of connecting with that person? Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely want to talk about this strategy that you're mm -hmm. talking about, changing how people think and offering solutions mm -hmm. because there's a lot to say about it, and yeah. it's one of my favorite strategies. But in terms of thinking about just like helping people sort of accept what they're feeling and validating what they're feeling, it's really important for a number of reasons. So one, again, thinking back to the fact that we're really social, mm -hmm. connection is important to us. So sometimes when we reach out to somebody to be like, I'm having the struggle, you don't necessarily want a solution yeah. in that moment at least what you really want is to know that they get you they care about you you're not weird for feeling this yeah. way we're constantly second guessing ourselves and i think that's where the type of emotion that someone's going through is going to become important so if they're having a conflict with someone mm. maybe telling them oh maybe you're seeing it the wrong way yeah maybe not gonna work yeah or like <laughs> you know i'm really stressed about this thing i know i shouldn't be but i am right they'll sort of start to cue you i think in what they say and you'll sort of know what they need. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times in the research, what they say is that even when, you, when you're when you gonna use a reappraisal, help them problem solve, help them find the solution, uh, that starting with a validation, starting with an acceptance, mm -hmm. just creating, like it basically creates space mm -hmm. to let the reappraisal come in. Mm -hmm. And so some of, I've done a lot of work on this like social <laughs> reappraisal because I think it's fascinating how we help change someone else's mind in an emotional situation. And it's more effective than when we try to reappraise on our own. So that just means if I try to change my own mind about how to fix something and I'm just not, I'm just, it's not working for me that well, um, or maybe it is, but it's working, a, it's working fine. When I get it from somebody else, it kind of makes it feel more real. Like mm -hmm. when you give me a perspective about how this is different, then I might think that's actually possible. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's plausible. That's mm -hmm. believable. I really can't do that. It's not just in my mind. Yeah. So it brings it sort of outside of you potentially. Um, and so it's interesting because it works It works mm -hmm. when you get reappraisals from other people. Some research has shown that when you compare when someone has just validated someone or helped them reappraise in a, like a high-stress situation, in the moment, people will just be like, yeah, I mean, the validation felt better. But a week later, when you put them in that high-stress situation again, the reappraisal is what actually helped them face yeah, it again. Yeah. And so a lot, of, a lot of research sort of converges on this idea that 
validation feels good, but reappraisal is sometimes really just what you need. Yeah. And so you're not doing the wrong thing. Yeah. You're just like skipping the feel good part. Yeah. And sometimes people need to feel good too. That's true. You know what? And and you know what? In defense of of, <laughs> of my method, I like to think that I'm that. Uh, there's always this like moment, especially in like coming of age movies, where like maybe there's like the you they showed like the friend group of like the not so cool guys and maybe one of them gets like promoted up to the cool group and like they realize like at some point usually towards the end of the movie that like they're not their real friends and they're like around all this like this thing that they wanted to be a part of they realize like it's fake and that now they just want to like you know go chill with their like not so cool friends or whatever and like they're they're and it and usually there's something that like they the the that person like has like a fight with their not so cool friends where it's like oh you're probably just jealous because I've been like promoted blah, blah blah and then it just takes a little time for them to realize like oh shit y'all were right I feel like I'm the you need a little time to realize yeah, I'm right type yeah, yeah. friend because like like because I I like I, personally it's very hard. To, if I, like, care about a person, I cannot, like, lie to them and mm -hmm. be like, oh, yeah, like, you're 100% right. Or, like, mm -hmm. you're, like, you know, like, yeah, there's nothing you can do about that problem that you can totally fucking solve. Like, I just for can't sure, do For that. sure, for sure, for sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I definitely wouldn't want, like, time to pass and somebody be like, damn, like, you low-key, like, had something to say and you just never yeah. said it. You know what I mean? No, but, for sure. Uh, and that's the speculation that we have and something that we're trying to tease out right now. Yeah. is like, what is the sort of time course of this sort of social reappraisal process? Mm -hmm. Is it really something that needs to sink in over time? This is a sort of anecdotal experience I think we've all had yeah. where someone will be like, here's a different way to see it. And you're like, no, yeah. no. And a week later, you're like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, they were right. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is something we're still sort of trying to uh sort of map out yeah. in the lab and sort of to, to tease out like why that's the case and what is the sort of time course of that but that's that's an intuition we all share and i also think that at part of being like you know sort of connected to others and feeling cared for and all these things is knowing that like different people offer different things mm. if you know you need validation you should go to your validation friend if you know you need to solve the problem you should go to your problem solving friend and that takes some level of self-awareness yeah, of yourself and your relationships yeah. that's something we all need to work on yeah damn yeah no and i and i and i've i've been luckily i have the the self-awareness enough like in the um uh last few years to like let my friends know before giving them advice that like I'm a very certain type of advice. Yeah, friend. that's responsible. You know, no, yeah, because yeah, for me, and and I should be, I should like clarify, like if it's the first time, you're like, if we hang out maybe like once a week, once every couple of weeks, whatever, and you're complaining about something for the first time, I would always hear that person out without like giving a solution first. It's like, oh, this is the first time I'm hearing mm -hmm. you. Like you're like emotionally to communicate but it's like week in week out you're complaining about like a job or something yeah it's like nah man i can't like i can't do it twice yeah that's like, fair you know and sometimes honestly that's what people need yeah. that's the literature has shown that over and over and over again mm -hmm. that like sometimes they really that's not what they want to hear because it doesn't feel good necessarily to hear like while I am really stressed out, I need to put additional effort in to change mm. this. It's a little stressful, mm. you know? Damn. Do you do you think could you could you do a study on what the what the price of of being too honest is in mm. your relationships? Yeah. And like what because how would you how mm. would you prescribe the right amount of either like back padding or just straight up lying to a person to preserve the the good status of a relationship like yeah. like what what 
how would you even prescribe that? That's really tough. And I, I honestly think that a lot of times, I think it's pretty sort of like natural to lie in mm. relationships. And I think that people lie more when they're less intimate with people. That's mm. what I would think. Because I think that the less good friends you are, the more you're just trying to keep things chill, mm -hmm. trying to keep things good. You don't want things to be awkward. Then you're going to kind of tell them what they need to hear. Sometimes you might have a different opinion, but you're like, I don't think they're receptive to this. I don't need to go down that road. But this goes back to, again, resources. Mm -hmm. Am I really going to put my resources into somebody who is like either not receptive to it or who I'm not super invested in. Right. Whereas I think the more intimate you become, meaning it doesn't have to be just a romantic partner, but like a good friend, someone yeah. you really trust. I think that's where you start to lie less and that's where you develop more intimacy mm. and greater trust to the point where you can probably trust that person's reappraisal when they offer a different perspective more. Mm -hmm. When you really trust someone, you're more likely to believe that not only do they have your best interest at heart when they say this, but that, you know, like that whatever they're offering you could actually be true because yeah. you 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 respect this person. Yeah, yeah, damn. All right, bullshit. Kind of, kind of related, but um, we I think loneliness is a very uh, popular topic right now. But um, I feel like I feel like attachment is harder to identify and harder to identify as a problem when someone has um, attachment issues. And I don't know, like, would, would your work uh, figure out, like, like, would you ever, I guess, do the work to define, like, what an attachment issue even is? Yeah, that's okay. So I'm not an attachment researcher, but mm -hmm. there are lots of attachment oh, that, researchers. Oh, that's a thing? Attachment yeah. research? Oh, a lot of people study it. Shit. We have scales for it. Um, yes, it's super interesting. And in fact, uh, in my lab, it's something that, that people are particularly yeah. interested in because of course it affects the way that you bond to people in your adult life and things like that. But a lot of it is rooted back to your childhood, right? Mm -hmm. What was your attachment mm -hmm. like to your parents? This is where it all begins. Yeah. Um, and uh, it doesn't mean pe pe their parents were good or bad. It's just like different circumstances can lead to different types of relationships. Mm -hmm. And that can lead you to have different attachments to people that you are close to later in life. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean your romantic partners, but also sometimes your closest friends. It can also affect things like your uh, sort of like your perception of social relationships more generally, mm -hmm. what they're supposed to offer, what they do successfully offer. And um, yeah, so it can definitely mm -hmm. affect all of those things. Wow. Okay. And, and, and I guess, um, are there any, cause obviously you're not, um, you're not a, a therapist and, and I, like you're not telling people what to do and all that, but, um, are there in turn, you know, we all, we've all heard, um, quotes like, oh, you know, by the time you're like five or I've heard different numbers, five, eight, two, whatever that like who you are on a fundamental level has already been decided, mm, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I wonder if there are in your work, if there's like maybe consistent methods or mechanisms or whatever, where somebody is, there's like a, maybe a, a tried and true process of someone becoming more emotionally intelligent mm. and like what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of becoming more emotionally intelligent, so emotional intelligence is still 
So the way that it's defined is that you are good at recognizing, understanding, regulating emotions in yourself and in others. Mm. So I think that if you want to become more emotionally intelligent, you've got to start with home base probably. Mm. you got to figure out what are the tools to regulate my emotions, start to learn from your own emotional experiences. When this happens, I feel this. When that happens, I feel this. How do I want to feel? And then at the same time as you're working on those things, you can start to apply those same concepts to your relationships with other people. Um, When they respond this way, I've noticed what they really want is this. Mm. Um, When I say this, I notice it changes how they feel immediately. But when I say this, I notice it actually helps them in the long run. I think these are all things, I think as you sort of study yourself and others, it doesn't even need to be super scholarly. It just means you have to like take notice, yeah. I think, of yourself and other people. Yeah. Um, I don't think emotional intelligence, for example, comes from like reading a ton of papers. Right. I don't think that's yeah. going to make anyone emotionally <laughs> intelligent. In fact, it could be the opposite yeah. in some ways. A lot of maybe me-search could come from a sort of failure to, to do those things. Yeah. Um, but I think the more that you notice and the more that you sort of put effort into understanding yourself and others, the more that you can become emotionally intelligent. Yeah. That's so interesting. That's, um, uh, God, I haven't, I don't even know why this is happening because I haven't watched Seinfeld in a while. <laughs> fucking, I mean, Seinfeld is the show about nothing and it's literally, all it does is touch on like very nuanced dynamics in relationships. So it, in a way, it kind of is like a crash psychology comedy course. But mm-hmm. um, like they would, uh, a lot of times like Kramer, who's like the, he's like the, super out there character um he would uh say things like um uh you know uh he would be like he would be like take me for example this is what i would do in a in a in this situation and uh the characters would always chime back with something like well like kramer you're not normal so you're like not a good like reference for that and i think that so that's what i thought of because i think you have to have a certain level of awareness Mm -hmm. to know it because like what even is the average emotional span what is like the average viewpoint on things Mm -hmm. so there's a use your own reference you have to like have a certain amount of self-awareness to know if you're even if you can even be that totally yeah yeah Yeah, you'll have to be self-aware and then you'll also to when you like take it to the next level Mm -hmm. you'll be like socially aware you'll start to understand how society affects all of these processes and that will give you sort of more flexibility. So a lot of times when people talk about like an effective regulator, mm-hmm. it's all about being flexible. Yeah. You're not like, this is my strategy. I go in, it doesn't work. If this, I don't like it, this is how I change it. Yeah. No, that's not always going to work. You got to be really flexible. What strategy do I use? When do I use it? With whom do I use it? All of these things will make you more successful. And I think starting to think about society and culture can start to build that sort of like more broad awareness. Mm-hmm. And in... Um in offering advice, uh, does your research ever go into the best type of advice? And to explain that, um, I've always felt um, I, I've, I I take giving advice really seriously because I, I I think we are all very easily influenced, especially like the the more someone trusts you, you have to like. I feel like you have to have like a, you have to be very aware of your words because you might influence somebody. So I've always felt like the best advice objectively every single time empowers somebody to ask themselves the right questions to get to like their own conclusions. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like, like what probably matters more than anything is that they feel sure about moving forward than like, just like being like, yo, tell me specifically what to do. I mean, so, um, on, on that note, um, 
but I have, I have met people where, um, in a way they'd almost get frustrated because like, I'm not telling them a very, they want a specific fucking thing. Yeah. And that mindset, I don't understand. Like, right. I would want to walk away feeling empowered to make like a decision for myself. Yeah. But d- d- does your, does your research ever like discuss like what, like the, the right type or right way to give advice is? Yeah. So, okay. So one of the things that you were saying made me think about, of course, like clinical therapy mm-hmm. in a clinical therapy context, you never, want the goal of therapy to be like here's your checklist one two three now you're good to go mm-hmm. it really is about empowering people to 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 recognize and realize their own values mm-hmm. how they want to shape their emotional experiences and sort of accept them when they can't um generate their own advice yeah. and one thing that's interesting about this sort of social emotion regulation process is that Throughout therapy and even maybe throughout your caregiving experiences or even with your friendships, there's some work in the attachment literature Mm. saying that, you know, your attachment figures sort of become internalized over time. So it becomes a little bit of like an internal monologue in a way. What would my friend say? What would my therapist say? And so that is a way of empowering people, even though they're thinking back to what you what you said. They're only thinking back to what you said because it left an impression. Right. Like you made a difference for them. And they're like that time they made a difference. How can I make that difference Mm -hmm. myself right now? Mm -hmm. And so they'll bring that back. And sort of generate it, and that can easily become your own your own internal monologue at yeah. some point. It shapes your own voice. Yeah. We all have an influence on each other's voice. Huh. Um, yeah. Wow, man, that's again. I'm 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 blown away, man. <laughs> I'm absolutely blown away. And um, I'm I'm curious as to what I guess in your opinion or in your research, what what would uh, what is something someone can do to if somebody's like listening to this and they're wondering if um like like do you do you start do you like go down this own path by yourself by asking like what is it that you want out of life and what might be in like your way because in a way like you have to define what a problem even is i feel like a problem is relative to like where you are versus where you want to be as a person so i I guess like what would you advise somebody like what what's the right way to go about knowing if you have the emotional intelligence that you either want or need Mm, that's a really interesting question so how to sort of identify where you're at or where you want to be or both because like i guess if i were like all right man like i want to be um i don't think i'm emotionally intelligent because i'm not like a billionaire yet and i'm i'm like not like it it, it, so i feel like it would be relative to Mm. what you even think life should be giving you or what you want from life but yeah, I guess, like, how would one go about measuring their own emotional intelligence? Yeah, you know, that's interesting because it actually makes me think a little bit of the dark side of emotional mm. intelligence, which is that you can become successful at manipulating others, oh, right? Yeah. The more emotionally. So when you think about, you're talking about being a really successful business owner, this is a sort of, like, CEO archetype yeah. that you have. Someone who's highly emotionally intelligent, I mean, they can regulate themselves, they can be a leader. You can even think about this in terms of like a cult leader, yeah. right? Like these, this isn't necessarily always a good thing. Wow. It means that these people are extremely <laughs> adept at not only recognizing what the other person's feeling, but changing it, manipulating it for their own well-being. Hmm. And so it's good to remember that emotional intelligence can have this dark side. So I think that when we think about what we want out of emotional intelligence, we should ask ourselves again, like what are, what are my values? Mm-hmm. Is your, If your value is to be like a good friend, a good spouse, a good parent, you can start with that perspective mm-hmm. and sort of sort of 
start to think there more in the context of those relationships if you're offering what you want to offer. You can also think about emotional intelligence as being someone who can take care of yourself right? because taking care of yourself has an effect on other people, right? right? If you feel sort of like um, confident or, um, you know, able to, to manage your emotional experiences, it can be sort of positive for the people around you. Not to say that, you know, if you're going through a hard time, you're not, you're totally licensed to rely on other people when you need to. Um, but I think it, it starts there. Where am I now? Am I currently in a position of over-relying on others, under-relying on others? Mm. Some people are under-relying on others, yeah. right? They, they sort of are emotionally uh, not necessarily shut down, but a little bit more worried about how their emotions might burden another person mm. or whether the other person can meet them where they're, where they're at and mm -hmm. things like that. So sort of figuring out, am I there? Am I there? Um, so thinking about it socially can also help us think about it internally. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, no, I definitely fall in the, uh, what, what was your word you used? Under. Um, like under relying on under -relying. others. Yeah, yeah, I'm very much a like, yeah, no, it's crazy. Because I always like, especially in my early 20s, I patted myself on the back for uh, being like very independent very early on. And then I realized, especially in the last few years, I was like, huh, yeah, you know, there's a... <laughs> There's a couple problems with that. Yeah. Um, but no, nah, I think I think for me, and I think a lot of people probably realize this, I think it's um I think it's it's unfortunately using your logic to figure out why someone would even like care. Mm -hmm. Um and it and it and it and I say logic because it you assess it logically, but it is probably coming from like some place of self worth and like mm -hmm. or if, attachment. Yeah, yeah, you know, attachment styles. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean it's it's that's that's so uh, that's interesting. I'll text my therapist. After <laughs> um, yeah. Nah, man, this is this is cool. So I guess I guess uh, and you know, obviously I know like we're close to the to the end of our convo here, but I'm curious as to like what. Um, how does this like how does because how, all, all the psychology people i have on and i'm like man like how so how does this impact your own everyday life just like knowing like does it change the way you see dynamics in in a lot of situations like has your own research i, I feel like naturally as you like learn more stuff you look inward and you're probably like oh shit man like that's that's kind of me right there yeah yeah but like what's it been like like what's your self journey been like through learning all this yeah honestly i think that I've learned, personally, I think I've learned what I'm good at and what I'm bad at because mm. of this. I think I probably entered it thinking that I was, like, pretty good at mm. the whole regulation thing. Yeah. You know, I was, like, a successful teacher, successful, whatever that means. It seemed to work out. Um, and so I, I think that learning about emotions more in this way has led me to sort of identify what, what worked for people, mm -hmm. like, what I would, like, keep and the things that don't work, both in my social relationships and for myself, mm. what I could work on. And I think, in general, sometimes having a lot of emotion knowledge just puts you in this little bit of a rabbit hole. Probably mm. people have told you this before, too, where you go so deep, sometimes deeper than you need to, yeah, you know? Yeah. So I don't necessarily recommend getting like as oh. deep as you can get. Um, just because that's not what we always need. Yeah. But it's wildly interesting. That, that is, the, <laughs> that is the, the less common curse is um everybody knows what it, everyone can relate to like not having enough tools in your toolbox but like having too many is like the less common dilemma and that that's yeah as a natural overthinker myself um yeah fuck i, yeah. I can't even imagine like i think having all the tools and like having all the the info that you have 
yeah, no, I would drive myself crazy trying to like apply all that shit to oh, my life yeah. and, and all that. But it's a lot. Whew, that's crazy, <laughs> man. I wonder. I wonder if like you get to a point where like like knowing all that like either like in, inspires you to be better or just like inspires you to just like fucking give up. Just like God damn. Yeah, man. I mean sometimes <laughs> it inspires me to just like try to turn that off. Mm-hmm. I don't think I can, <laughs> but sometimes I'm like, you know what? That's not the perspective we're yeah. gonna take of this situation. But in general, it definitely does inspire me to be better. And I think that's probably why I research it. Yeah. I'm just like, what's the best way to be there for people? What's the best way to be there for me? Mm. Um, and constantly asking that question can only make me sort of like reinforce that goal. Yeah. Dude, I'd love to see like a comedy skit of like someone with your background, like having an argument with like a, like a romantic spouse and just being like, I know you did this because then like you start like quoting a study. That, oh like, my God. Oh, my, my partner at this point is like using my own research back at yeah. me to show how much he's learned like <laughs> through this process. I'm oh, like, yo, you shit. deserve a doctorate. That's shit. <laughs> crazy. I didn't even think about that shit. Like, oh when, man. Damn. When your partner starts and then they start using that shit. That's Oh yeah. Ooh. Oh yeah. It's, it blows that's, my mind sometimes. I'm like, whoa, yeah. dude. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. I think everybody, everybody's worried like if they date like a, like a therapist that they'll do the work on them. If I were a therapist and then my spouse started doing the work on them. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be crazy. And let me tell you, that was not his starting point. This is not the kind of work he was trying to do, but here he is doing it like a pro. So. Dude. <laughs> you know what, man? That's a, that's, look, that's a good skill to pick up. For though. sure. We can all do it. That's it just depends awesome. how invested you are in the relationship. Yeah. 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 Man, that, that, I think, um, I think, I think having this like as like the backbone of, of your work, because I imagine like people reach out to people, you know, people with your background for all types of shit. Like I'm sure people end up going into like certain things and in, uh, in politics where you have to like calculate how a person comes off and shit like that. And um, would you would you fit quite under the like, um, God, for like lack of a better reference, like like you know like the mentalist type shit. Like those guys where like, but they're like, I guess specifically trying to read actions Mm. and like micro shit, but. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I think I'm just a, I'm a psychologist. I'm a researcher. I think um, I'm an affective scientist. I'm interested in emotions. And so I think that a lot of researchers are really careful about like saying they can like read people's behaviors, Mm -hmm. even though of course what we're talking about is doing that, right? Like figuring out what they need. That is reading behaviors. Um, but we're always really careful saying things like that because there's never you're never guaranteed to be right. And yeah. so always give yourself a little bit of be humble, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> that's crazy, man. Um, well, shit, I, I, you know what? Out of out of respect for your time, I will like not ask you like the 10 million more questions. <laughs> I could. But um, I guess all I guess my last question for you would be like, again, because you can do so much with this. You know, you, you, you could be, I mean, fuck, you could be an academic, make a, a good living for the rest of your life and just teach a bunch of kids. You could, I think you could, like, really help people and, and do all sorts of stuff. But I guess, like, what do you, like, what vision do you have for yourself, I guess, with, like, what you can, what you can do with this? Hmm. Okay. Well, I think, you know, you caught me right at the end of my PhD where yeah. I'm, having, I'm asking myself that's all true, these questions <laughs> yeah, that's true, yeah. where it's like, what do I want to do with, with this? And I think that a lot of that... It's just going to be, I think it's a little bit, I'm going to ride the wave. So Mm -hmm. it'll be be a little bit circumstantial. But I think in terms of like maybe a vision, if I were to stay in academia and be a professor, I think that I would like to influence people 
in the way that I teach by mm -hmm. using what I've learned about people and emotions in the way that I teach others mm -hmm. to hopefully help them like learn better and feel better as they're learning. I think that I would like to be a positive mentor to other yeah. students be through these two. Like you can't be a good sort of manager advisor right. if you don't have these skills. I think recognizing people's needs is really important. I think recognizing my own needs. I hope that I can take care of myself through all of these things, take care of the people nearest and dearest to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope also to have just like, yeah, a broader impact. So I hope that ultimately my work can sort of like make its way back into the classroom because that's where it started. Yeah. That's sort of where I was inspired. And I think that if this, if this work has the potential to impact people positively in terms of their like socio-emotional like learning, I want it to be back with kids mm -hmm. in a class where they can learn together and they can sort of take something away from their education that can hopefully help them for their whole life. Mm -hmm. Damn. That's cool. Look, if you know, I was going to say, because with kids, that's, I, I like it, because you're, you're too cool for hiring. <laughs> too cool for hiring. Plus, they're not, you know, but I, I, look, I, I just came from a class earlier, and, like, you know, we're all, like, on our phones and shit. We're not even, like, appreciating what this person is doing. <laughs> but the little kids, they appreciate it. They appreciate it. They'll remember you, man. I, I remember all the teachers that gave a fuck, so. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, man, again, congrats. I, I know it's got to feel like. Just like I have a master's recital coming up, and I and like I know once that's done, like my, all the the weight off my shoulders are gonna be gone. So uh, I'll be where you're at in two weeks. Yeah. But congrats, congrats man. early too. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, but nah, like what what you're what you're doing, what you've worked on is just super cool. And and uh, damn, we gotta bring you back on. I'd love to. Gotta be bring back. you back on. This like, is awesome. Know, there's so many directions you can go in this topic, but. Um, no, again, I'm just, I'm grateful for today. Thank you. Me too. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. This is a really fun conversation. Of course. And look, man, you should do podcasts more often. <laughs> should, hey, it's great. It's, it's, I think, I think, um, yeah, I think people like, and of course, you know, you're used to being in like labs and, and I guess more inward spaces, but uh, for the sake of humanity, yeah. we, we need more yeah. people like you, like helping people out instead of like some dude with like a fucking like, I don't know, like a fucking, I, I don't need like a, like a surfboard tat <laughs> on his chest being like, women are this, men are that. It's like, bro, they should not be leading that fucking conversation, you know? So, um, but, uh, yeah, no, you're, I, I like, I tell most of the academics that come on here, like, man, y'all, y'all gotta start like going out and talking. Yeah, People need you guys. for sure. Um, I mean, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for like pulling us out here, you oh, know, yeah, taking us course. out of our little lab basements of course, and getting of course. us into the world. I get it. Like for me, it's the, it's the practice room. And like, sometimes you actually have to like, remember like, oh yeah, like I practice so I can go fucking perform, you know, but, um, anyway. Man, this was uh, awesome for people listening. As usual, uh, thank you for listening. This is a song called Life, and we're out. Yeah.